Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 24, as we read verses 1 through 32. Hear now the word of God. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, fight, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and acted. Uh, he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. 
They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this very day. Let's pray together. <clears throat> we are gazing upon the holy and resurrected Son this morning in this text, O oh God. Give us a glimpse of this beauty and glory today, giving us eyes to see our absolute need of him and his perfect provision for all of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the things I have begun to learn, and it's taken me a while, is the incredible capacity I have to lose amazement in things that I ought not to lose amazement in. You see, the sad reality is time does have a way of stealing away our capacity for amazement. Things that once made our jaw drop can eventually become things that we just know and maybe we still appreciate on some level. This can happen with family, um, with children even. Uh, before you have children, there are very few things that are harder to imagine than how amazing it would be to hold your own child in your arms, to know that this is your offspring. It's an incredible feeling. And it's something that, as you anticipate it, you can never imagine that being sort of a humdrum experience. And yet I think of, of all the folks in our church, and I include myself in this, uh, who have parented. What parent can't relate, at least occasionally, to the exhaustion and the occasional lack of amazement we sometimes feel when we are in the middle of the chaos and the stress of parenting. Over time, we can lose that amazement at something that we never, years before, would have imagined that we could stop being amazed at. Um, think of this. There's something else that I can think of that ought to amaze us and ought to have amazed us all this time. And I suspect that most of us did, on some level, take it for granted. Um, given what's transpired over the course of the last month, uh, and as we uh, continue uh, to look forward to the future and wonder how long this season is going to go, perhaps we should have been more amazed every single time we were able to meet as a church. I think we should have been more amazed every time that we were able to be in this room together as Christ's people, as God's people, looking at one another, appreciating one another, shaking hands with one another, embracing each other. We should have been more amazed every single time that it happened. And it's possible that now as we have lost that immense privilege over the last month, and perhaps even further into the future, we realize what an immense gift it is that we have lost during this season. You know, it was always a gift, and we always should have been amazed by it. And I suspect if you were like me, and you had Sundays, you weren't amazed by it. It was simply a part 
of the rhythm of life. And now here we are, and I hope you're like me, you yearn for the day when we can return. The point is, time has a way of stealing away our capacity for amazement with things that we ought never to lose our amazement at. And what I hope this morning is that even though uh, you may have heard of the resurrection of Jesus for years and years possibly, I hope that you will look at this passage this morning with the freshest eyes that God is willing to grant you. Look at this passage with the sort of wide-eyed amazement that the disciples had when they first witnessed the resurrection. Place yourself in their shoes. Allow yourself this morning the, the profound opportunity of trying to think about the resurrection of Jesus with fresh eyes. Eyes that don't take the resurrection for granted. Three points this morning as, as we move through the narrative. Point one is the resurrection reported. Point two is the resurrection discussed. And then point three is the resurrection interpreted. Let's put ourselves in the disciples' shoes this morning. But let's also listen very clearly to what Jesus has to say about this thing that we as Christians spend so much time remembering and talking about and thinking about. It is central to what we believe. As Paul said, if Jesus Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people to be most pitied. And so the first point this morning is the resurrection reported. Notice the steps of what happened here. In verses 1 to 3, the women come to finish the preparation of Jesus' body. It is Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, along with other unnamed women. Now, <clears throat> we know why they came to the tomb, of course. There was barely time uh, to get Jesus buried before sundown on Good Friday. And so these women have come to complete the task. However, the stone is already moved and his body is gone. And verse 4 tells us they were perplexed about this. This is very reasonable. They should be perplexed. Why would the stone have been moved? Who would have moved the stone? What would be their motivation for moving the stone? Who would have a reason to gain access to this tomb? We're talking about an incredibly massive stone. And in verse 6, we see the very first recorded announcement of the resurrection. It is not reported by men. It is reported not by women. It is reported by angels. They speak to the women and they say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. It may not have been men or women who first reported the resurrection. It was angels, but make no mistake, the first witnesses of the resurrection are women. Think very carefully about this. The, the, the first people to hear the message of the resurrection are women. The men had all split, except for the Apostle John. All of them ran for the hills and hid when Jesus was crucified. And yet we remember that the women had stuck by Jesus through his crucifixion, even though it was so dangerous to be associated with him. And so it was women 
who heard the message of the resurrection first. As is only fitting, they stuck by him. The reaction of the men, of course, is they don't really take seriously what the women say. They have decided in keeping with the custom of the times that, that the testimony of a woman is invalid. They need to see for themselves. And so they run to the tomb. There is skepticism here. They need to see this with their own eyes. That John or Luke says it explicitly that they didn't believe and that's why they went. But when they get there, Peter's attitude appears to be changing because what does Peter do in verse 12? He marvels at what happens. Their attitude is some form of unbelief still. And I, I think for, for many of us today, this attitude feels inexcusable. We can't imagine it. But I think this is partly because we are spoiled. We know the whole record. This side of the cross, this side of church history, we have heard tell of the resurrection so much that we tend to think of it as old news, old hat. We take it for granted that Jesus has risen, but here we're seeing the resurrection in its newest and freshest form as it's delivered. I would suggest that if you're the sort of person to be troubled by doubts, to sort of um, be troubled whenever you have questions, I think there's a comfort here in this narrative because isn't it comforting to know that even men like Peter and Thomas and Cleopas had trouble believing what happened at first? That doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that it's commendable. It doesn't mean that it's, that it's good to be filled with doubt. It's not good to be filled with doubt. What we want to be filled with is faith. But it might keep you from despairing to know this. If you have questions, aren't you, in a sense, protected from despair by, by seeing this, right? Is, I think it is a mark of the authenticity of the gospel narratives that they include the unbelief of the very people who ought to have belief. They include in the narrative the hesitation of the apostles themselves, the people who are supposed to be our models of faith and our models of belief, and yet here they are, and they hesitate to believe the very message that they end up devoting their lives to proclaiming. So by this point, none of the disciples have seen Jesus physically yet. So far in the narrative, the resurrection is something they know of because they've heard it reported by angels and because the body is missing. But what they are missing is firsthand experience. They have not seen the risen Lord. This is point one then, the resurrection reported. The resurrection reported. The second point this morning is the resurrection discussed. This is done by two disciples as they're traveling along the road to Emmaus, beginning in verse 13. And we know the name of one of the disciples. It was a man named Cleopas. The other one, we never learned his name. But the passage tells us they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. When Jesus joins them, they're talking about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus as he comes upon them. 
And Calvin points out that this is a proof of their godliness, right? This is proof of their godliness that their talk wasn't on themselves, it wasn't on worldly things, but they were walking by the way, and what are they doing? They are talking about Jesus together. This is something friends should do. This is something fellow Christians should do. It is a wonderful thing for believers to talk about Jesus together. When we talk about the means of grace in the church, we're talking about the word, we're talking about prayer, we're talking about the sacraments, but those are what we call the ordinary means of grace. And every church is meant to be defined by the ordinary means of grace. They represent the bare minimum of what every church ought to be doing. But we should also keep in mind there are other means of grace that God has ordained. There are other ways that God blesses us too. What would that be? Things like singing Christian songs. It might include, it might include sharing meals together. Um, but it certainly includes conversations with other Christians. And that's what these disciples are doing. They're enjoying conversation about Jesus together. Now, at the moment... You may feel like your ability to have that has been hampered by the events that are going on in the world around us. Here is my encouragement. There is no excuse for us as Christians not to be using our phones. If you have a phone, if you're able to pick it up, if you're able to call another Christian, if you're able to call another church member, ask them how they're doing. Ask them how you can pray for them. Ask them how they are handling being quarantined. In some of their cases, they actually may be working very hard, in fact, harder than others. We have several nurses in our church. We have several people who work in the medical industry in our church. They may be overworked. They may be the opposite. They may not be trapped at home at all. They may actually be out putting their lives and their families on the line to serve other people. But a large number of people in our church are currently trapped at home. And it's the right thing to do right now. It's the loving thing for us to do for our neighbor. Let me encourage you, though, there is no reason why we cannot talk with other Christians about Jesus. Following the model of these disciples here as they are walking down the road, what are they doing? They are talking about Jesus. The passage tells us, though, that these disciples are blind, and they're, they're blind in two ways. The first way that they're blind is they're physically blind. Verse 16 tells us their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So it doesn't tell us that Jesus looked different. It doesn't tell us Jesus had a different form or that he was disguised. It, notice that the passage says it's their eyes that were the problem. Not Jesus. Jesus wasn't the problem. Jesus was not disguised, but their eyes didn't see him. They didn't see who he really was and what he really was. I think it goes to show just how dependent we are on God, not just for our lives, but even for our ability to see and interpret the world around us. It's one of God's daily favors that we are able to live and learn and know and understand what we're seeing. But they're blind on a second account, which is this. Listen again in verses 22 to 24. Listen to their version of the things that have happened. 
How do they recount what is taking place? It says, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So notice how they tell the story. They haven't embraced the, the message of these women. They are not narrating the story as the women told it. As far as they can tell, his resurrection is, is hearsay. They don't say Jesus rose from the dead. They say these women claimed they spoke with angels, but the men didn't see him. You see how they're talking. It's a very condescending kind of towards the women, isn't it? They mention that these women claimed to see Jesus because to, cast, because to them it cast doubt on the truth. Sorry, they claim that they saw the angels. But even then, they, they, they lay it out as a claim that they have seen the angels. They also don't say they saw that the tomb was empty. It says uh, that they came back and said they'd seen a vision of angels. So uh, they mention that these women claim to see Jesus because to them, it casts doubt on the truth of it. Right? In the first century, it took multiple women testifying in court to answer to equal the testimony of one man in court. Um, notice this, they have an explicit bias against women. And that would have been common for the time, right? If a man isn't a witness, then it's in doubt. So as far as they're concerned, the women saw a vision. That's the word that they use. They saw a vision. A vision of angels. It isn't right. And we know today that women and men are of equal intelligence. But this was the belief, this was the practice of the first century. This was a common view in those days. This whole narrative here undercuts that wrong-headed belief, right? But this doubt helps us explain why verse 17 says, They stood still looking sad. Did you notice that when Jesus comes upon them and he asks them what's going on, they stood still looking sad, right? They're sad because they are not persuaded that Christ is risen. At this moment, they believe that they serve a dead Lord, not a risen king. Can you imagine how different their faces would have been if they had believed the truth. If they'd only believed the truth, they would not have stood still looking sad. They would have been in motion. They would have had somewhere to go. They would have had people to speak to. They would have had folks that they need to tell this message to. But they stand still because they have nothing to share. And they are sad because they think their Lord is dead. Verse 25 gives us Jesus's initial reaction to their version of events, and I would also say to their countenance, right? They have a sad countenance. They stand still. Jesus sees this. He sees unbelief dripping off of these men. And what does he do? His response is to reprove them. 
Reproof is, is, is correction. Reproof is something that Jesus does with people he loves. In, in Revelation 3.19, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus does this for, for these disciples. Christian, if you belong to Jesus, then expose yourself to his word as often as you can. Give God opportunities to reprove and correct you. Because those Jesus loves, he reproves. You should want this for yourself. You should want to be corrected. It's hard to tell if he's angry or if he's disappointed. He seems more let down by their blindness than he is angry, though. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What is the basis of Jesus' reproof? Jesus doesn't necessarily fault them for not believing the women, although he certainly does, certainly does do that. Ultimately, what, is, what I mean is, what does he ultimately do? Ultimately, he pinpoints their unbelief. He says, they are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So their refusal to believe what the women have said is really an expression of refusal to believe God. They actually don't need the testimony of the women to know that Jesus has risen because they have the testimony of God already from the scriptures. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, you've had sufficient evidence of the resurrection before anybody even laid eyes on that empty tomb. Why? Because you know the Bible. And you knew that it was going to be, that this was going to happen. Um, for our family worship service this morning, one of the psalms, one of the songs that we sang was Psalm 16. And I don't blame you if you struggled to sing that song because we haven't sung it together as a church. But if you notice, that last verse of that psalm is a verse about the resurrection. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. This is David picturing for us the Messiah. In the Old Testament, it is already promising the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus says, you're not slow to believe those women. You're slow to believe what the prophets have spoken. The Bible already told you this was going to happen. These are godly men who still struggle to believe. And I want you to hear this loud and clear. They are not so different from us. They're not so different from you. They're not so different from me. You and I are a lot like Cleopas in a lot of ways. One of the ways we're like Cleopas is that we are dependent on the eyewitness of others. We haven't seen Jesus for ourselves. And so Jesus says to us, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus knows full well that the majority of people in human history who do believe in him come to faith without having seen for themselves a direct and physical vision of the risen Jesus. Instead, what happens? The Holy Spirit 
persuades us that the testimony of the apostles and the the disciples and the prophets in Scripture speak truly. Jesus persuades us of that. Jesus reproves them. Not because they didn't believe the witnesses, but because they didn't believe the prophets. Yes, what the prophets spoke of eventually happened, and it happened in real time and real space and real history. But Jesus doesn't fault these men necessarily for doubting their fellow men or women. He says their doubt is an expression of deeper unbelief in God's revealed, inspired, and inerrant word. Jesus tells us, beginning in verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think many times Christians steer clear of the Old Testament. They do it because they find it to be foreign territory. It's a a strange land they're not used to. And many Christians wonder if the things in the Old Testament are are even relevant for them at all. And what Jesus tells us is the Old Testament, especially Moses and all the prophets, most certainly speak of Jesus. This is a book that is relevant for us. If I might put it this way, the Old Testament is a Christian document. That shows our Messiah to us. You see, God's plan isn't something that was cobbled together over time until finally the idea of the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus occurred to him. No, the plan of God runs like a straight line through all of God's dealings in the Old Testament, and it runs directly and intentionally from Abraham and Adam. From Genesis chapter 3, through Genesis chapter 12, through Moses, through David, all the way to Jesus. And this means that the Old Testament is our book as Christians. We treasure it, and we believe it because it's the Word of God. Jesus faults these men that he's traveling with. Because he says, when God spoke in the Old Testament about the resurrection, you should have believed it. The truth about the resurrection doesn't rest on the eyewitnesses, although they confirm the truth of it. The truth of the resurrection is objective and real and historical. It happened in real space, in real time, in real history, in a real place, to a real people. But our certainty of its truth rests on the fact that the prophets of God were carried along by the Spirit and told us about it in the Scriptures. In other words, Jesus accuses them of not believing the Word of God the same way that you would accuse someone of not being able to tell the taste of salt from the taste of sugar. I have no greater application to make at at this point than simply to say, Experience is important. History is important. It cannot be denied. It is real. But there is something even higher, something more important, 
something more trustworthy than even eyewitness statements. And Jesus tells us that's the word of God itself. This is precisely what Jesus shows us by example this morning. And so the second point this morning is the resurrection discussed. Think of how ironic it is that these men are doubting the resurrection in the very presence of the resurrected one. It's an irony that should not be lost on us. Here, here they are with the risen Lord right in front of them. He is with them. He is accompanying them. He's traveling with them. He's conversing with them, even sharing a meal with them. And this whole time they're wondering, is this real? Is this true? Can it be that these women are right? And I would simply ask you, is it possible that you're filled with doubt? When all the while he's been carrying you and looking after you and even making it possible for you to right now to wonder to yourself, is it true? Theologian Cornelius Van Til has said, in order to slap God the Father in the face, you must first be sitting in his lap. One of my favorite sayings, you've probably heard me say it before. And what he meant by that was in part that we depend on God even for the sensibility and rationality that it takes to ask our skeptical questions about God. In him we live and move and have our being and only because he's there and sustaining us and caring for us, creating a world around us that is logical and reasonable, only because of God can we wonder if he's really there and meeting our needs. And the disciples here do something similar, right? They live with this skepticism. And they wonder if Christ really rose. And all the while, they're right there in his presence. Sharing a meal with him. Christian, you may be in a moment right now where you feel not only questions of doubt, but maybe you even wonder if he's really there with you. You're lonely right now. You haven't seen a lot of people. You miss the fellowship of the church. You miss being able to get together on Sundays and sing, and here you are on this Sunday morning, and you're thinking the same thing that you've been thinking for the last few weeks. What is going on? How long is this going to be happening? How long am I going to feel this way? Christian, he is with you. He is upholding you. He is carrying you. He is traveling with you, even in your doubts, even in your hesitation. There is nothing righteous, there's nothing good about questioning God. There are many teachers today who encourage you to feed your doubts and ask those painful questions. And I don't want to encourage those questions, but I want you to know God uses those questions to refine you and shape you and make you ask the deeper questions that some may not even ask. 
He will use those questions to drive you deeper in Him. But the best response to doubt is not to continue to feed the doubt. It is to answer the doubt. It is to seek the answers which do exist. And those answers are out there. They are out there if we're willing to ask the questions. God is willing to show us the answers. But sometimes it takes work. But you see, the answer to doubt isn't more doubt. The answer to doubt is faith and trust and truth. Those are the things that we answer our doubts with, not more doubt. Once Jesus blesses and breaks the bread, their eyes are opened, and they realize whose presence they're in. They're, they realize whose who's, uh, presence they've been in this whole time, all this while. Here they are, far down the road. The day is ended. It has been one of the saddest days of their life. And they have spent it in the presence of the Lord. Maybe this has been one of the saddest weeks of your life. Surgeon General uh, spoke on Sunday this past week and said that this week may be one of the saddest, darkest weeks for many Americans. He warned that that might be exactly what this week is. And maybe you feel the way those disciples felt as they were walking to Emmaus, where you're feeling sad, and standing still, aren't we all doing that to some degree or another? Feeling sad and standing still. And they had no reason to be. Because there they are with Jesus the entire time. He's present with them every moment. From the moment he joins them to the moment he leaves, they have Jesus risen and reigning with them. And then Luke says this, it says, Jesus vanished from their sight. As soon as they realize the comfort that is theirs, he is gone. We don't know if he got up and left. We don't know if it was something supernatural. A God who can raise Christ from the dead can certainly move his body from one place to another. But the way he leaves isn't what's important. What's important is their reaction. What do they say once he leaves? They say, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? You see, something in them knew that it had been him the whole time and they missed it while it was happening. We all have different testimonies of how God brought us to himself. I know many Christians can testify that it was their darkest valleys where they realized that Christ was really present, that he was embracing them, that he was carrying them through those dark times so that they would know what his grace really was and how strong he was to save them. Throughout this passage, this morning, Jesus isn't driving us to the empirical evidence, even though that is certainly real and legitimate. He is not directing us, first and foremost, to the witnesses, even though we know they were certainly there. First and foremost, his response is to say, 
regardless of what you think, regardless of what you feel, regardless of what you're slow of heart to believe, the answer is found in the scriptures beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Christian evidences are good. They are fine. They confirm the truths that we already know. But there is nothing. And I say this especially in a dark time. I say this in a time of sorrow. I say this in a time of loneliness. There is nothing that can replace the inspired, inerrant Word of God itself. Let's pray together. Lord, you know that we are often slow of heart to believe. We have so much in common with Cleopas and his companion. Forgive us for those times when we do hesitate, when we do question what you've already said to us instead of believing and receiving what you have already so clearly held out for us. We ask you to help us believe, but also help our unbelief. It's in Christ's name that we pray.